Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. This is episode number 55. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. So uh, we would love to hear from all of our listeners. Uh, we would love to hear what you think about the podcast, uh, what your current projects are, any topics you would like for us to copy or cover, I should say, or just say hello to us. Uh, if you'd like to reach us, you can uh, hit us up at podcast at macrofab.com or on Twitter with at macrofab. Yeah, and um, last week was the first week we started doing that, I guess. And Derek, who is a longtime listener of our podcast, his Twitter handle is the current source, which is a really cool Twitter handle. He's got a cool um, logo too. Yeah, it's a TCS and with a nice blue font and. Yeah, no, he he clearly spent time on that. Yep, but he emailed us last week asking that what we had any project ideas about this ginormous thyristor that he just got, and it's a one thousand two uh, one thousand two hundred volt SCR thyristor. So, do you have any idea what what is a thyristor? Because I actually had to, I never even looked at that part before. So, okay, uh, I've had a little bit of experience with thyristors in the past. Uh, it's not a really common component. You don't you don't really run into it. Well, even not much. anymore either. I was looking up the history of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, be, and and mainly because MOSFETs have become much better. And uh, triax and right. other sort of things. So, so a, a thyristor. Um, actually, have you ever heard of a, an SCR before? I think it's silicon controlled. You know, I don't even remember what that what that is. Oh, okay, so let, let me let me back up. A thyristor is is basically two transistors that are are stacked on top of each other. Yep. Uh, so it's and, got a P and N, a P and then. Right. So yeah, it's got four four junctions in there. What's unique about a thyristor is uh, it will not allow current to flow until you activate its gate effectively or okay. its base. But once you activate its base, it will not stop. <laughs> the current flowing. It's almost like a runaway. Yeah, it's sort of almost like an avalanche, actually. Okay. Uh, in a way. Okay, so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. basically, An avalanche you, effect inside the diode, yeah. Right, so once you pulse the gate, the current starts to flow from the, uh, from the collector to the emitter, and it just doesn't stop because it turns itself on after you do that. So you trigger it on, it stays on. The only way to turn it off is to remove the voltage from the, the uh, collector. And yeah, the so it's, it's like throwing that pebble on the side of a mountain. And you kill everyone at the base. That's right, right. So one one of the uh, really useful uh, things with these guys is is um, AC control. So if you put an AC wave across this, you can actually chop the AC wave and effectively PWM an AC signal. So if you've ever wondered, like, how do I uh, dim a light bulb without just putting a big resistor in series with it, you can use a thyristor. And then pulse the... It's it's input, so to speak. Right, right. So check this out. Here's what's actually cool about it. Uh, you do, Because you don't really have uh, a sense on the mains frequency, if you just send a pulse to this thing, it may turn on at any point in the, the, the cycle of the mains frequency. Yep. So what you can do is you can actually take the mains frequency and put that into a comparator with uh, with a with, zero threshold and what yep. you get is a square wave pulse that is at the frequency of your mains it'll go up or down whenever the mains frequency crosses zero and then you just adjust that duty cycle that's right throw that into Damn. a into a microcontroller and adjust however you want and then what's cool about that you can make a uh, a dimmer that doesn't uh, convert uh, the lost energy into heat so it's way more efficient than just throwing a big resistor in in yep. series so 
uh, Derek has his has got his hands on a twelve hundred volt uh, thyristor, so y- you could use that on a on a light bulb, but it's way overkill for that. Uh, a cool idea. This might be expensive, but um, like a power dump. So get a whole bunch of capacitors and charge them up like crazy mm-hmm. uh, to a very high voltage, and use this thyristor to dump all that energy all at once. And you can make a, like a huge spark gap or just something that just blows crap up. <laughs> or or a, um, you can control a Jacob's Ladder probably with it too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, there, there's, the, there's a lot of cool little applications you can do with them. They're, they're sort of niche because yeah. it's just once you turn it on, it, it does not turn off until everything is gone effectively. But uh, but yeah no that's a, that's a that's a thyristor so give it a shot Derek yep see what you uh, build with that crazy thing actually I want to take a picture of it because I want to know how big something like that is you know okay so de- actually probably more depends on the amperage it can handle yeah not really the voltage so so I worked on a, um, uh, a gosh what was it called it was a uh, a dredge. A dredge out in the uh, the Gulf, uh, gosh, a little while ago. That's actually uh, when you were still working. You were working at Macrofab too. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, you right. Brought that a- dirty, disgusting motor controller in. You know what that motor <laughs> controller was? It was a thyristor controller. Ah. It, it what it did was it controlled six separate thyristors in a uh, in like a Triple H bridge uh, to control a six hundred volt, three hundred amp motor for the dredge. The dredge floats along the coast, and it just basically eats up the coast and spits it back out into the ocean. Yep. And uh, it, it's all about firing pulses into these thyristors. Now, that 600-volt, 300-amp thyristor, it's about the size of a hockey puck. <laughs> okay. So, so, this, so th- this one is probably, depending on how much current it can handle, is about that size. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I want a part. I, if I ever design something crazy, I want a part that's a so- like just a big part. Yeah, that's the cool thing about designing audio gear is you get like a part, a transformer that's like the, the size, size of, of like <laughs> an old McDonald's Happy Meal. Remember when they actually came in cardboard boxes? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know why that came in my mind about like comparing it to that size, but maybe I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so what you been up to this week, Parker? Um, so last week we talked about marking capacitors on silkscreen and all that good stuff, and so I wrote an article about that i covered pretty much i didn't cover every single type of capacitor but i covered the problem ones like electrolytics pretty much just electrolytics so um you know aluminum electrolytics i covered uh uh, tantalums and that's pretty much where i left off in that article and those are those are the big ones yeah um i did do radial and axial style aluminums as well though and you did through hole and surface mount right yes Cool. Um, have you ever seen a through-hole tantalum tra- uh, capacitor that was polarized? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I have never seen one of those because all the ones I've seen are bipolar. So they uh, um, they look they're, they're called dipped capacitors, mm-hmm. uh, and they because they're actually dipped in resin. That's right, and that little like yellow goop that's on them, they'll have a, a handful of plus signs on the uh, positive side. Okay, so maybe I need to update that article with that then. Yeah, that uh, you know, actually, funny enough, that happens a lot in audio circuits. They use dip tantalums, uh, but and of course, a, it's audio, so it's through hole because they sound special. Actually, tantalums sound like crap. 
<laughs> but they but they're they're really they're cheap and they're really good for power supply ripple. So you gotcha. don't you don't put yep. them in the signal path. You put them in the power supply. Yep. Well, because they have low ESR. Yeah, very low. That's why they can eliminate ripple. Okay. <laughs> so there we go. Oh, yeah, there's the thing. Yeah. Steven, like, do you have anything else? And he's just, like, just looking like, at me and, like, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's it. All right. Um, and then uh, kind of a side project, because I, I do all the board design for Spooky Pinball. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just started the next revision of the pinball controller. Um, but hang on, hang on. Which revision are you on? I think people need to know. This is Rev 7... E. e right actually i think we're actually it's such a it's actually gonna be we're changing it more now so i think we're actually gonna have to increment that to eight that's that's well i mean well, it's had, not just eight it's it's eight with letters in between yeah but well the thing is it's been a production board since rev four right um so there's been pinball machines over the past four years now of all these different basically whenever we need an, a, a new game comes out we're like okay we need to tweak the design slightly or improve it slightly and the slight improvements are are are, are letter increments right and then when we actually like okay we need to like move this stuff around on the board that's a, a number increment all right so a component change would be a letter depends um a lot of times we don't even increment the the silk screen on that if it's just like replace the like R134 with a, you know, move it for a, from a 71K to 100K, which we actually did to, because um, it was on the uh, amperage suppression, the mm-hmm. inrush current protection. We actually had to increase that because um, we were having issues with ser- uh, servo motors uh, basically browning out the 5 volt line. And so we basically had to uh, relax the protection on that. And so we had to go from 71K to 100K, and we just made a bomb change. We didn't actually do anything else for that. Gotcha. Okay, so this is going to be a little bit of a tangent here. But uh, this is a problem that that a a previous job I had, we had a a big issue with it, and I want to get your opinion on it. Okay. So you have a product, and that product inherently has a whole bunch of drawings and a whole document package and artwork and all kinds of crap that goes along with it. In order to make it, you have to have, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 drawings. Yeah, that right? like an uh, entire CD full of stuff. Right, right. So even to make a PCB, you have, you know, your bill of materials and all the other drawings that go along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, at my previous job, we outsourced a little bit of our work. Uh, so we would have a PCB built, but then it had an assembly drawing that went with it because we would put wires on it, and then we'd put it in a little cup, and we'd fill it with epoxy, and there was a couple steps, and each one of these things had its own drawing, as engineers tend to do. Yeah, what what needs to happen and how it how it gets done. So here's the thing. The, the, uh, the people we outsourced to, they were trying to get us to have all of our revisions for all of our drawings to be the same level. So, in other words, if we wanted to change the value of a resistor on a bill of materials, all the other drawings that are associated with that product would then also have to roll, even if nothing changed on each document. From a, as, as since the fact that Mac, you know, MacFab, we build stuff. Yeah. I would agree with that. Okay. Yeah. Because 
Nothing is worse to when you open up a file and you're and you're working on let's say board V one, mm-hmm. and then or no excuse uh, board V two right, and you go okay let's go flash all these boards with the correct uh, hardware and you open up the and the hex file says V one and you're like there's a version difference. Is there should be a version difference or is there not a version difference? Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's yeah. Having all all the revisions or what I really what I really like is if you change something, you repackage it into a zip file mm-hmm. or whatever, and then change the versioning on the master top level. Yeah, and so you increment that or just put a new date on it or whatever. Sure. And so they know at that date. When this was created, that was the master document. Yeah, yeah, and and from the manufacturer's side, that makes a lot of sense. But like, if if Ford decides to change uh, a, a bolt in one of their engine cases, should they have to roll all the documents for the entire truck to the next level, or should they just roll the bill of materials that has that? Well, yeah, bolt they would roll that, but then they would take the whole thing. At that factory and make and then change the top level to be, you know, two sixteen twenty seventeen. Sure, but but I guess what we were uh, posed with was all of our documents. If one of them rolls to level E, all the rest of them on the document should say E, and gotcha. that and that got to be, you know, we we got in a bunch of arguments over is that valid is that worthwhile because i mean we make a small change we now have to pay a guy for an hour and a half to go in and change every document (laughs) (laughs) right right and and it gets confusing too because if you look at the revision change log there would just be a ton of line items that say no change but we had to change the revision because this other document changed we eventually just created uh we we didn't change every document's uh letter what we did was we just made a, a giant change log that was like, if you're building this product, then you need this document of this revision, this document of this revision. Gotcha. So, we, yeah, we had this big log, and we would send that to the manufacturer, and they would, they would do everything based off of that. So in, 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 a, in an ideal world, everything would line up. Yeah. But they never did. But it never does. I mean, we had to change a single resistor, like, almost mid-run last time. Right. <laughs> right. And then everything just gets crazy because then – if you did that, half of the boards that you built would be referencing one letter, and the other half would be re- oh, it just starts oh, to yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, well, it's even worse. The first game we ever built, um, Spooky Pinball, ever built America's Most Haunted. The original rev that was production was Rev Four, mm-hmm. and when we started, and that was built halfway through the development of America's Most Haunted, and we realized we needed like X Y Z in the kitchen sink added to the board. And we did that and made Rev 5. Well, when Rev 5 rolled around, uh, the pinball machines were actually already in production. Mm-hmm. And so a couple Rev 4s are in America's Haunted. And there's enough difference that they're running the first batch of code that ever was p- went gold, basically. Hmm. So it's running Rev 1 of code, and you can't change it because the version, I think they're on like, Oh man, Ben is on Rev twenty eight, version twenty eight of the firmware that runs America's Most Haunted now. Wow! And there's such a huge difference; you cannot make it work on Rev four now. Yeah. And the, the amazing thing is, those machines that are running Rev four have never been updated, and they still work fine. 
Well, that's what you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're making the changes of probably Rev 8, and we are actually working on, we actually named it Pinheck Rev 8 ETOL, which is end of the line mm. edition. It's because this is the last of the, last of the pedigree of the Pinheck system. The last of the propeller. Yeah, last of the propeller. Actually, maybe not. Y- yes, because the propeller is not going to be on Rev 8 actually at all. Right. Um, but we're working on this system is basically going to be a test bed for the next system, which we have not named yet. Because um, we'll, we want to come up with a different naming scheme, and it will be Rev 1 of whatever that is. Oh, okay. We just re- a restart. Because it's a new product. Yeah, we're actually going to be, I'm be, I'll basically be wiping the schematic completely 100% clean and starting all over. It's going to have the same elements, same kind of connectors, stuff like that. But where parts are at is, is going to change a lot. You know, I'm updating all the the footprint practices from that I've learned over the past, like, four years. Mm-hmm. will be all the new stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, crazy. Cool. Yeah. So, Steven. Yes, sir. Same question. What have you been doing? What have I been doing? Well, uh, I think last week we we mentioned that the resistor resistor would be arriving this week, and it showed up today. Yeah, this morning. And this <laughs> that is the greatest resistor in the world. <laughs> yeah, this morning. Uh, and and you know for the, for all of our listeners who've been listening for a while, uh, you guys have been waiting for it. I've actually we've actually had some people write in, been like, "This is cool," you know, waiting for it. Can't wait to see what's going on. So it showed up, and it looks great. Uh, there does, there, there is a, a, a small issue <laughs> and this was a complete derp moment from me. I think it's pretty uh, funny. Par- Parker, do you want to tell everyone what I did wrong? Yeah, so I, I actually was the one who unpackaged it this morning because it had my name on it. I pull it out and I immediately saw what was wrong. Um, <laughs> so Stephen put on the sides of the, of the resistor big strips of copper. And so it would look like the edge of a uh, resistor, mm-hmm. you know, where, where the metal wraps around basically at the end. Yeah. So that's what you solder to. So, but he forgot to put the solder mask resist there. And so it's all solder masked over on the edge. <laughs> and so you can't actually connect anything up to the board. I, I goofed. It's all solder masked over. <laughs> so... <laughs> so the, the the resistor resistor doesn't doesn't currently have a way to connect connect to, to the outside world. <laughs> um, so yeah, I done goofed on that. Uh, but but the, luckily there's there is a plenty easy workaround to it. Fiberglass pen. Yeah yeah we, uh, we, we or or even sandpaper um, high grit sandpaper You're like four hundred grit. Yeah, you could do four hundred and then and then go higher than that, and it won't even look like. Uh, Except maybe copper, if, not gold. If, well, <laughs> if you mask it off, yeah, uh, do do uh, like a little circle mask or something. You can sandpaper the um, the solder mask right off, and it'll look fine. It's just a little extra work we have to do. And I got that, and I was just like, "Damn it!" Yeah. Well, <laughs> and also I like your idea of making like some aluminum blocks that slide on the edge. Yeah, because then it actually looks more like a resistor. Yeah. And then we should have got it made in black solder mask too, so it'd be blackboard. Yeah, yeah, it's the 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 board is ridiculous though. Yeah. It I mean, to see forty thousand parts 
on there. It makes your just, eyeballs hurt. Yeah, the you, pattern you can't on it? focus on anything. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. And here's the thing that's that's really cool. Uh, it's I don't remember the width. I think it's 18 inches, something like that. Yeah, it's it's wide regardless. Uh, what if you look at the pads with the naked eye, you can see that the PCB manufacturer slightly got their stencils off because on one side the uh, the 0402 pads. The left pad is slightly smaller than the right pad, and as you as you look across the board, you can see it get more and more aligned. Yeah, so it's not even an alignment; it's actually a stretch, or 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 even both. Yeah, right. Or no, it's not even a stretch. It's the when they shot the um, masks with the lights. Uh huh. The lights that must be where where it's more lined up is where the light was more overhead. The UV. Oh, yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah, because on, on one side of the board, all the pads look uniform and great. And as you go across the board, it it, it almost uniformly gets worse. Yeah. Uh, it's not any any kind of issue. We'll still be able to build the board, but it's noticeable. Yeah. Uh, and it's on both sides of the board. Interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, so we're going to have to come in on a, on a Sunday or, or Saturday and build that thing. Yep. Maybe next weekend. Not this weekend. Next weekend. No. The uh, so my wife texted me. My synth PCBs have showed up, so I will be cracking those open tonight and taking a look at them. Oh yeah! So that's another come in on the weekend and spend you know eight, nine, ten hours making. It. <laughs> yeah. Um. So uh, another little project we've been uh, working on is uh, some conveyorization out on the floor, and uh, we've been we've been uh, building some circuits for one of our hand place benches. That goes in between our pick and place and our oven. So boards come out of the oven and we occasionally need to put some parts on by hand. Well, I've been kind of putting together the the conveyor control system in there. And um, we bought some... Okay, so so the motors that we have on this uh, conveyor system... They're kind of funky. They're funky. They're big. The 130-volt DC yeah. motors, which is weird. And they don't, they don't pull a lot of current, though. But the 130 volt DC and yeah, 130 volts. Like, what? Where does that come from? But we found 130 volt motor drivers yep. that just take line voltage in, and they do all the rest of the magic of getting it to 130 volts. Uh, so we got those, but they have a really cool um, in the manual. They have a little circuit that because uh, it's usually just a potentiometer control, right? It's usually a potentiometer control where the the high leg is connected to some voltage. The bottom leg is ground, and then the wiper is right. some voltage yep. in between. Uh, but but in the manual, they're like, if you want to control it with a microcontroller, they give a little circuit um, that's an opto-isolator that goes into a dual-stack transistor, which is basically a current uh, amplifier. Yep. And, uh, and then it's an RC filter afterwards. Yep. And uh, by running that, you can PWM it, and you can get something between 0 and 5 volts and not have to worry about your micro uh, pumping into the potentiometer jack. Yeah. So it's kind of like a uh, basically a low-pass filter mm-hmm. for your PWM control. Uh, well, it's not really just a low-pass filter. It's it's a uh, it's an amplified low-pass filter. Exactly. Uh, but, that, but it only uses two transistors as opposed to building up like an active op-amp circuit or whatnot. Yeah. So I built those up on a little perf board. Um, Parker actually bought a little cool... It's like a carrier wagon thing that holds a little perf board, yeah, and it, it goes on a zip. Yeah, it snaps a zip. Din rail. A din, uh, yeah, not a zip. Zin rail. A zin rail. Um. 
uh, yeah, it goes on a little din rail. Uh, so we need to take a little picture of that. Uh, yeah. But I got some. I got some screenshots of the the scope of the circuit working. It's a pretty cool little thing. Yeah. It's. I, I always wonder is because that thing was like the directions that came with these moto controllers were like xeroxed a hundred times. <laughs> they were so faded, and so the schematic was pretty faded. But I'm always wondering. It's like I wonder how many people have actually made that circuit. The original engineers and us. So two people. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a really cool gesture that they even put that in the manual. Exactly, because I was like, I got the motor controller, and I'm like, oh, because it said it could be PWM controlled on the description. Yeah. And then I looked at it, and I'm like, I don't see <laughs> how, because it just has a wiper there, and and yeah, that's how. Some assembly required. Unfortunately, you can't no. do this kind of circuit with any pot in any situation. Or potentiometer. It it. Yeah. Uh, I wish you could, because it would be great to just be able to PWM and do analog control on anything. Yeah. But in this case, it works out well. Yeah. It. it no. I, I said earlier, it's some assembly required. No, it's some engineering required. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, I just had a perf board and a handful of parts, and I had to build actually two of the circuits because we have two motor controllers on there. Yeah. So. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Okay, so on to the RFO section. Yep, RFO. So this week on the RFO, we have Solar Roadways. Ooh. Yes, that again. Um, we have Spark Fun launches Spark X. And then we have McDonald's reinvents. That's why I thought about McDonald's earlier. Oh, there you go. Subliminal messaging. Um, reinvents head, the straw. <laughs> yeah, they're in my head. <laughs> uh, they reinvented the straw, apparently. Okay, so topic one Solar Roadways. Uh, so we harp on solar roadways like IoT a lot. Shoot, you know, didn't wait, wait, wait? Didn't we talk about solar roadways in our first podcast? In our first podcast, we did. Yeah, and we were crapping on them then. Let, yep. Let's see what happens now. So this is a different company that's doing solar roadways, okay. and they're doing it in France. Their name is Wattway. Like Watt the the power Wa- unit yeah, of power. Watt power. Wattway. Um, it's a two year experiment in France. Uh, they're basically be doing a single lane road, and it's stretching, uh, it's stretching one kilometer long, which is like 0.6 miles. Yeah. Okay. Around there, uh, it's going to cost five million euros. Okay. Which is five point million USD, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's going to be like two thousand eight hundred photo cells. So it's a lot. It's a lot. A lot of photo cells there. Yeah. Um, and it's going to produce. Uh, 280 megawatt hours of energy a year, which is roughly 600, 767 kilowatt hours a day. Okay. Which is, guess how much enough power for? A few houses? The street lights on the road. <laughs> Just enough. For 5 million euros. Yeah. And the thing is, if you work out how much that is... It turns out to be nineteen dollars and twenty nine cents per kilowatt hour. <laughs> we pay four cents kilowatt hours here in in Texas. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, then they're like, well, people are probably going to complain, or the the people who support solar roadways, are like, well, you got to include the cost of the road, right? Well, in the United States, to build a two lane road, so it's twice as wide as this road. It's actually probably even wider because we have SUVs here too, which mm-hmm. need bigger roads. Mm-hmm. Um, that's only three million per mile. Wow! So it's 
it's half the it's it's a quarter the cost to build a normal road hmm. than this solar roadway. Yeah, they just need to nineteen dollars and twenty nine cents a kilowatt hour. I yeah. can't get over that. That is ridiculous. And so, and so if you if you quarter that, or well, if you take seventy five percent of that, because some of that is uh, that dollar amount is actually building the road, mm-hmm. but then you're still at like fifteen dollars per kilowatt hour. If you remove the how much the road costs, yeah, and that's just it doesn't make any sense. So it's just, it's just burning money. So the okay, some 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 they've actually done this right, and this is some places, data that yeah. they've actually gathered. Yeah, this is actual numbers. Okay, um, wow. So the I, I'm gonna I'll pull out something that's super and that's only obvious. For, and, and by the way, it's only for two years, and then they have to redo it. Well. So are they storing the energy somewhere? Because they're going to have to if they're going to light street lights. With I was it. about to say they, 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 oh, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's it doesn't just, work. It, no, it just does, yeah, it doesn't work. You need street lights. Yeah, this is this. <laughs> we'll, we'll spend five million euros and light them during the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, renewable yeah, energy. Come, Woo. come on, guys, get get away. No, renewable energy is fine when it's smartly applied. Smartly. Yeah, smartly. Bigly applied. Bigly applied. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Thumbs down, solar. Get get on with it, guys. Focus on another version of renewable energy that can work. Like solar tiles on roofs that actually work. That that idea works, guys. <laughs> All uh, right. Anyways, um, Spark Fun launches Spark X this week. And so basically Spark X is SparkFun's plan to rapidly iterate on ideas, products, parts, etc. And they have three commandments of Spark X. Okay. And speed over polish, so they won't be doing a lot of documentation for this stuff. So basically it's build it, does it work, and if it does, sell it, and when they run out, that's it. Uh so it's not like developing a long-term product. I, well, d- what it sounds like is it's just setting yourself up for failure. What am I missing well, here? No, 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 number two is <laughs> just unabashed. build it. If it doesn't work, just sell it all. N- well, well, number <laughs> yeah, that's actually what it is. Number two is unabashed by failure. The second commandment is don't you don't care about failure. If you fail, just fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> just, okay. And number three is go. I, I feel like we may be missing something here. No, no, well, so I think what the idea is, instead of spending a lot of time, like, let's say making a breakout board for a new, brand new part that just hit the market. Yeah. Okay? Instead of spending all the time, you know, making sure that, it, you know, they'll make a breakout board that it works, right? But instead of spending all the time doing the documentation, setting up sample code, all this other stuff, a website for it, and a product page to go, here's this part, here's its data sheet, you can buy it. Okay, okay. So it, 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 it has a little bit of uh, buyer beware in terms of you get what you see, and that's all you get. That is all you get. Okay. There's no so, support for the product, nothing like that. If you want to throw together a product in an afternoon and get it to market, this is a way to do that. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like um, it's their internal. Basically, it's taking their – I think it's they're taking their engineering team and the ones that are itching to try new stuff – but don't really care about documenting stuff. (laughs) 
Or or they're just trying to get it there quickly and see if it's something that could be successful. Exactly. And then roll that back into, okay, this was a successful product. We sold out of it in like a day. So let's actually send that over to the guys to make documentation for her and, hmm. and re-spin it. So so is this uh, is this uh, Nate, the CEO, yep. who's starting no, this? No, Nate's not the CEO. Okay, I thought he, he was. He was, and then he stepped down, and another CEO took over SparkFun. So he's just Nate, the engineer. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. Okay. But is this his? Yeah, his this is thing? his deal. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. so um, Nate, if you happen to listen to the podcast... <laughs> we would love to have you as a guest. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to. I'd love to talk about this and hear more about the details on it. I doubt he listens, but it'd be awesome if he does. Hey, maybe one of our listeners knows Nate, and they would uh, like to reach out to him. Maybe a Spark Fun engineer that listens to the podcast will like to be on the podcast as well. Well, let's get them too. Yeah. Yeah. So let us know at Macrofab Podcast at Macrofab.com. <laughs> well, at Macrofab is Twitter also. So you can you can reach us there. Yeah, podcast at macfab.com. Reach out. Yep. Okay. Topic three. McDonald's reinvents the straw. This is this is something that I really liked because it's something I would name something. So straw is you mean actually really, really bad cheesy acronyms. Yes. Okay. This is suction tube for reversal axial withdrawal. <laughs> That is awesome. I did, did, wait, wait, before we even get into this project, did some guy get his master's or his PhD doing this? Please tell me someone got it. That. Oh, you mean actually designing the straw or making that acronym? <laughs> Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, they basically were trying to figure out a better way to get, uh, this is actually something I wrote, a 3D printed straw that fixes problems by uh, withdrawing thicker, or I should say viscous, more viscous liquid out of a cylindrical shaped vessel. So, so uh, you know, I, I actually looked this up uh, a little <laughs> while ago. The uh, everyone's had that problem when you get like a super thick milkshake and you suck on the straw and it just collapses. Collapses the straw. Yeah. So they fix that with this. All right. So it's a. It's actually. It's um, the walls are a little bit thicker. Okay. It's a little bit larger in diameter. Mm-hmm. But then it's got a J turn at the end. Yeah. And so it's got three holes at the one at the bottom. And two at the J turn, yeah, or in the in the upward. It kind of looks like feature. a candy cane. Uh, yeah, upside down candy cane. And so apparently, what happens is as you suck in the milkshake, the extra holes allow more volume to enter the straw. Mm-hmm. But when it gets to the upper part of the J J turn, the liquid is so thick you don't get air because it sucks out the bottom. Mm-hmm. The, my favorite thing about this was one of the like pictures they took of one of the. This is hilarious to say. A McDonald's engineer, basically, um, <laughs> pointing at a flow diagram of a straw. Yeah, but it was like a vector flow yeah, diagram. Yeah, a vector flow diagram of a simulation of, of milkshake, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah. So I read something also about the fact that this can be inserted into like special cups where you mix two different flavors in the straw. Yes. So you can do some kind of Yeah, like, so what no what you do is that you pour well they put half of it one flavor and then half the other. Uh-huh. So it's layered. And then when you put the the straw in there, half the J of the bottom of the J is in the bottom stuff and the other part of the J is in the top stuff. So you suck both of them in at the same time. Neat. Yeah, that is. This is something that was like I'm um, like I like I'm like 
it amazed me that something act someone actually designed this. I could and there's see, a team of people. Yeah, well, designed this. I could see a a new bit on either this podcast or or some other engineering something or other called unnecessary engineering, and this would fit. We can do that on perfectly. This Why can't we do that on this podcast? Fine, unnecessary engineering. There yep. we go. This is the first bit. The McDonald's straw. I think that's actually probably the title of this podcast, too. <laughs> <laughs> Episode number uh, 55, Unnecessary Engineering. Yep. <laughs> awkward silence. Yeah, awkward silence. Neat. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> um, so I guess that will wrap up this episode of the podcast, right? Yeah. Okay. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. Take it easy, guys. Hit us up on Twitter. At Macrofab. <laughs>